Could these study results apply to your life? If you or a loved one are living with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer, take a look at the data for a clinical study where 50% of eligible people with HER2-positive MBC lived over two years without their tumors growing or spreading. Visit HER2Results.com to learn more. If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Zen is America's number one nicotine pouch. It's made with only six simple ingredients. Plus, Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day hassle-free trial. There are lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zen. Find your Zen online or in a store near you at zen.com find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's. Because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only, Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive. And start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. Over the years, there have been many format and console wars, including Nintendo versus Sega, PlayStation versus Xbox, Apple versus Android. But there was one full-fledged format war that ruled them all. Years before we had to decide between streaming the latest video or taking it home on DVD or Blu-ray, a format war between Sony's Betamax and JVC's VHS began. The battle lasted for more than a decade, with neither Betamax nor VHS giving up. Bill Hammack 
is a professor of chemical and biomolecular engineering at the University of Illinois. He is known as the Engineer Guy, as the creator and host of his popular YouTube channel, explaining the engineering of everyday objects. In 1976, Sony introduced the Betamax video cassette recorder. It catalyzed the on-demand of today by allowing users to record TV shows, and the machine ignited the first new media intellectual property battle. In only a decade, this revolutionary machine disappeared, beaten by JVC's VHS cassette recorder. Here's Bill Engineer Guy Hammock telling the story of how Betamax was defeated by the VHS tape. This mighty machine sparked a revolution in our use of media. It's a Sony Betamax video cassette recorder from 1979. This monster weighs about 36 pounds. The engineer in me finds it fascinating. There's nothing digital. It's a truly analog machine. All moving pieces and parts. You're obviously a man who's having troubles at home. You're constantly fighting with your family over what TV shows to watch. Well, fortunately, you're looking at a simple solution to your problems. Sony Betamax. Early adopters of the Betamax used it to record television shows, a revolutionary concept at the time, because prior to the Betamax, you had to watch a show when it was broadcast. It threatened the entertainment industry so much that in 1979, they argued that recording television shows at home infringed on their copyright. It all came to a head in a Supreme Court case, Sony Corporation of America versus Universal City Studios, where five justices allowed home recording. Sony Betamax. Its only purpose is to serve you. Although Sony won this court battle, they ultimately lost out to a machine that used this size tape. This is a VHS recorder made by Sony's great rival, JVC. Both machines solved the same problem, how to store information compactly on a tape. Here's the brilliant innovation used by both machines. The machine grabs the tape, drags it forward as this silver drum starts to spin rapidly. The drum has two electromagnets called heads arranged on opposite sides of the drum that read the magnetic information on the tape. That rotating head allowed for a compact recorder. In many previous recorders, the magnetic heads didn't move, only the tape. Because there was a limit to how fast the tape could move, it took a lot of tape, about a seven inch reel to record an hour, which meant that a movie would need two seven inch reels inside a cassette. So the rotating heads dramatically reduced the amount of tape needed, reducing the size to where it could be easily held in a cassette. So if the machines are so similar, why did Betamax lose to JVC? Many thought the Betamax machine would win. It had the better image quality and the Betamax is decidedly better built. Compare ejecting a tape on the Betamax to the VHS. First, watch the Betamax. Note how smooth it is. And then watch the VHS. That's abrupt and will wear out the mechanism. Yet, to my engineer's eye, the VHS was the better solution. First, the VHS was lighter than the Betamax, 29 and a half pounds compared to 36 pounds for this Betamax machine. That's a huge difference for a mass manufactured object. It impacts everything from material costs to assembly time to shipping costs. So at the low end of the market, the VHS machines were cheaper than Sony's Betamax. Second, the earliest Betamax tapes played for only one hour, VHS played for two hours, enough time for a movie. 
Marty, shh. You'll scare the fish. But we're missing the big football Relax. game. Relax. My VHS home video recorder is taping it right now. Terrific. Watch. Terrific. But suppose it's over three hours. Relax. Panasonic VHS tapes up to four hours of sports, movies, specials on one cassette. Wow. This VHS is for me. Caught the whole game. Best catch of the day. Yeah. VHS, the four-hour system from Panasonic and other leading companies. The ultimate killer, though, was the rental market. Well, Betamax focused its ads and energies on time shifting. Their ads featured headlines like Watch Whatever Whenever. Well, JVC, the maker of the VHS system, created relationships with the nascent video rental industry. When this market grew, VHS dominated in titles. And when you could for a while find both formats, eventually retailers began giving shelf space to the slightly more dominant brand, which then dominated even more. So, the Betamax versus VHS dispels the notion that simply being first to market is the most important issue. It reminds us that technical excellence in one area isn't enough, here the superior picture quality of Betamax, but that all technical aspects matter. For any mass manufactured object, the winner is usually the one that is just good enough. I'm Bill Hammack, The Engineer Guy. And that is so true, just good enough often does it. And what a terrific story, and all of us who are old enough to remember these days. My goodness, just the simple idea that you could tape a show and watch it later. For anyone under the age of 35, this is nonsense to you. You can't even imagine a world where you don't get to watch what you want, where you want, and when you want. But back in the day, there were three channels, three, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And there was a PBS station, and if you held the rabbit ears up to the satellite, you could maybe get a little better picture. And it all turned off at the end of the night with the national anthem. And then the, it was just a gray screen. Hard to imagine what progress in this great country as it relates to content and the tremendous amount of creativity that's been unleashed by technology for artists. The story, the battle of Betamax versus VHS. And VHS, the good enough winner. And very special thanks to Bill Hammock, a.k.a. Engineer Guy, for sharing this story with us here on Our American Stories. Folks, if you love the great American stories we tell and love America like we do, we're asking you to become a part of the Our American Stories family. If you agree that America is a good and great country, please make a donation. A monthly gift of $17.76 is fast becoming a favorite option for supporters. Go to OurAmericanStories.com now and go to the Donate button and help us keep the great American stories coming. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And we continue here with Our American Stories. And up next, a story on one of America's favorite beverages. Here's our own Monty Montgomery with a story. We Americans enjoy our beer. In 2018, we consumed about 6.8 billion gallons of it. And by far the most popular style we drink is Pilsner. Here's Tom Acatelli, author of Pilsner, How the Beer of Kings Changed the World, with more. Pilsner is the dominant style of beer in the world and has been for well over 100 years. All the major brands you can think of, Budweiser, Bud Light, Miller, Miller Light, 
Heineken, Paps, are based on Pilsner or imitations of the Pilsner style. They're everywhere. They're, you know, every grocery store, bar, gas station, bodega, you name it. It's Pilsner. It was first made in a small, what was then a sort of a mid-sized city of the Austrian Empire called Pilsen. And what's now the Czech Republic, the local aristocrats in Pilsen who had the right to brew and sell beer locally. They were getting tired of their beer, their local beer, getting beaten out of the marketplace by beers from Bavaria just over the border. So the aristocrats in Pilsen are like, we're tired of losing market share to these guys, these Bavarians making these lighter, better beers. So we gotta co-op what they're doing, right? So you can imagine, you know, they, they, they literally have meeting, meeting after meeting, memos and, and, and manifestos about how to compete with Bavarian beer and knock it out of the marketplace in Pilsen. So what they do is they hire a Bavarian brewmaster named Josef Grohl, who uses Bavarian know-how, Bavarian recipes, Bavarian techniques. In other words, just sort of imports German technique and style over the border and makes this beer for the, the burgers, for the aristocrats of Pilsen to sell. And he ends up making in late 1842, now it's lost to history whether Grohl himself intended for this to happen, but the specific ingredients he used and the water quality, the local water quality, which was very important to brewing then as now, turned out the lightest looking beer anyone had ever seen up to that point. Before that, beer for millennia is dark and it's thick and it's rich, it's like liquid bread, and they weren't the color of sunshine. Pilsner was. This lager made in Pilsen in 1842, you know, it looks beautiful, right? It, it's bubbly, it's clear, it's uh, crisp when you taste it. It's, it's a beer that's unlike any, anybody has ever seen. Right from the get-go, Pilsner is extremely unique. And it quickly grows in popularity, first in the Austrian Empire, then in Central Europe, and then basically uh, all, you know, all over the world to the present day. It picked you know, the best time to be born and the best time to leave home. Because it's born in this kind of supernova of technological change and political change, especially in Europe. The technological change you know, is, is everything from the mass production of glass, which had never happened before in, in the history of humanity, because Pilsner looks great in a glass, it looks great poured, it looks great in glass bottles. The technology for fighting bacteria and infection, which can be deadly to beer and deadly to beer sales, comes along around at the same time. Brewing techniques, temperature measurement, all that is sort of blossoming around the same time as, as Joseph Grohl is doing those first batches of Pilsner and Pilsen. And then you also have stuff like the railroad for better shipping. The first mechanical refrigeration starts up because Pilsner, like most lager beers, unlike ales, tastes better cold. It's easier to preserve them too. But the political change is really what spurs Pilsner's story from sort of a local legend to you know, worldwide fame. There's all these revolutions and counter-revolutions in Europe and a lot of Germans and Czechs fled the turmoil. They were done with these wars and fighting and they settled in the United States, a lot of them. There were, there were about a million, a million Germans emigrated to the U.S. in the 1850s alone. They find the most opportunity farther inland, so they settle in cities like Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Louis. They take their 
preference for lighter lagers and lighter colored lagers and lighter tasting lagers to the United States. And of course the dominant style by then is Pilsner. And so that's how it spread basically. Anywhere you had Germans in the mid to late 19th century you were going to have beer and the beer was overwhelmingly going to be Pilsner. Wherever Germans go they bring this, this Jones for the lighter lager. And with the winds of the Industrial Revolution at their back, these immigrants created some of the most recognizable names in the beer industry today, including Anheuser-Busch. Eberhard Anheuser and Adolphus Busch were father-in-law and son-in-law, and they became business partners. Adolphus Busch basically rescued his father-in-law's business. He had a brewery that was failing, right? So after the Civil War in the early 1860s, Adolphus Busch begins to build the Anheuser-Busch brewing company into this mega conglomerate and he does it largely behind a recipe for a Pilsner imitation that he gets via a business partner of his who had been traveling in Europe and knew of the popularity of this lighter colored lighter tasting lager called Pilsner. Brings it back to Adolphus Busch says can you make this for me? He does and he eventually acquires the rights to it. They name it after a Czech town called Budweiss or Budweiser and that becomes just a sensation from the late 1870s onward. For many of the reasons that, you know, Pilsner itself became a sensation, is that it just looked good. It looked modern, it looked good in a glass, it looked good in a bottle. Anheuser-Busch is the biggest bottler of any food stuff at the time in the late 19th century. And it just takes off from there. I mean, I, I don't, you know, th there was sort of an arms race in the late 1900s between Frederick Papps and Adolphus Busch to have kind of the biggest brewery in the US and perhaps the world. And they were both racing each other with Pilsners. In Bush's case, it was Budweiser. In Pap's case, it was uh, what we you know, now know as the Pap's Blue Ribbon. Because of this arms race, they uh, end up just sort of sweeping all before them, competition-wise, and end up as you know the kings of brewing by 1900, by you know the 19-teens. Because of that, because of that race, Pilsner gets more and more ubiquitous and more and more unavoidable. And increasingly on the radar of temperance advocates wanting to end the sale and consumption of alcohol in the U.S. Back into the 1900s, right, there's a, sort of a movement to improve the United States. You know, in many, many cases, well-intentioned. Uh, and one of the ways to improve it is to, to cut back on overconsumption of alcohol. Now, the U.S. in the early 1900s was not a beer country. It was whiskey, whiskey and cider. And Americans drank a tremendous amount compared with the rest of the world. European visitors who chronicled their visits to the U.S. always noted how much and how frequently Americans drank. So there was an understandable temperance movement to sort of slow things down. Then what happens is you have this mass immigration of Germans and they bring with them a different way of drinking and a different type of drink. They bring lighter lagers which are much much lower in alcohol than whiskey and they drink it in beer gardens and the beer gardens are family affairs and the Germans are still you know despite the fact that they drink this beer noted for their industriousness and their hard work. So it sort of clashes with what the temperance advocates have been telling people for decades. That if you drink, you know, you're gonna be derelict and desolate and you know, not, not contribute, you're not gonna get up for work the next morning, et cetera, et cetera. German Americans disrupt this narrative. And so the temperance movement has to turn its efforts toward combating beer as well. And 
they also have to turn their efforts toward combating the brewers behind the beer. And they have a very tough time of it, but they get a boon from World War I. America's enemy in World War I, of course, was the German Empire. So the temperance advocates seize on American skittishness about German culture. War ends in late 1918. Prohibition passes in 1919, takes effect in 1920. I don't think it would have happened with the speed it did without the war and the anti-German feelings that the war engendered. It's a, just a fascinating slice of life and culture when you realize what happened over those 70 years, you know, and, and how Pilsner and beer is right in the middle of it. And great American storytelling and history through the lens of beer. When we come back, more of this remarkable story of how the beer of kings changed the world. The story of Pilsner continues here on Our American Stories. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only, Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Your teen requested a ride, but this time not from you. It's through their Uber teen account. You drive your teenager around a lot to their friend Jacob's house, their other friend Jake's house, to James's, to Jaden's, to Jalen's, to... Uh, Mom? This is Jake's house, not Jacob's. Now with an Uber teen account, your teen can request a ride under your supervision. They'll ride with a highly rated driver, and with live trip tracking, you'll follow along the whole ride to their friends' houses that all sound the same. Add your teen to your Uber account today. See app for details. Bye, Mom. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, 
featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. And we return to Our American Stories and the story of the Pilsner with Tom Acatelli, author of Pilsner, How the Beer of Kings Changed the World. When we last left off, anti-German sentiment in the U.S. was at an all-time high because of World War I, and prohibition went into effect, impacting brewers profoundly. Let's pick up where we last left off. With animosity towards Germans and German culture at an all-time high after World War I, the 18th Amendment was passed, ushering in prohibition. With their market dried up, brewers were forced to set aside beer and make other products to survive. Pilsner was put on hold. Some of them made near beer. They switched to, you know, alcohol that could be used in in, um, machinery. But a lot of them didn't survive. It's a much smaller field of brewers in the United States post-1933 when Prohibition ends. And what that means is the ones who could survive, who could get by, who could skirt disaster, they come out with the ability to grow very fast. Their, Their reach expands and you see this massive consolidation in the industry where the big get bigger and the smaller kind of disappear. Before Prohibition became the law of the land, there were over 4,000 breweries in the United States. By 1975, there were 115. And that's where I think Pilsner starts to have a wider cultural effect. Marketing Pilsner becomes such a, you know, an acute focus of these bigger breweries that they start to really innovate when it comes to advertising and marketing. So you get the quirky beer jingles, you get the cartoon characters, you get the sports partnerships, any number of things that we all know today and we can probably remember our favorite taglines like taste great, less filling, all you ever wanted in a beer and less. I mean, all, all those, you know, the champagne of beers, et cetera, et cetera. That comes about after Prohibition and helps Pilsner grow its reach wider and helps these breweries get that much bigger. The Budweiser's, the Miller's, they grew and grew and grew. Pilsner becomes so big you couldn't get away from it. The first big change comes when the Miller Brewing Company, which had had recently been acquired by Philip Morris, the tobacco giant, they were laser focused on growing from, I think they were the eighth or ninth biggest brewery in the country. They wanted to be number two behind Anheuser-Busch. They know that they're not gonna be number one. Anheuser-Busch is so far ahead of any brewer, maybe except for Heineken in the entire world. And how do they do that? They introduce Miller Lite. And this is the one I'm holding on to. Light beer from Miller. It has a third less calories than a regular beer. It's less filling, and it tastes terrific, too. I also love the easy opening can. Miller Light kind of changes the game. There had been light beers before, 
but they, you know, the marketing had always been toward people who maybe wanted to diet or to lose weight. But the problem is, if they're trying to lose weight, they're not gonna look to beer at all, whether it's lower in calories or not. So Miller Lite basically presented itself as, quote, a low calorie beer that tasted like beer. They wanted to be known as just beer, but with low calories. So they, uh, they came up with the famous tagline, Light beer from Miller, everything you always wanted in a beer and less. And it became this kind of sensation, you know, light beer. Just a quick aside, you know, this is another example of Pilsner's influence. You know, Miller Lite put a fine Pilsner right on the bottle. You can still see it on the labels today. But, you know, light, L-I-T-E or L-I-G-H-T seeped into all sorts of foodstuffs from that point on in the 1970s. So you had light everything. But back to beer. So light beer happens and it becomes, you know, so Pilsner, you know, becomes even, even bigger and more influential. The United States had essentially become a beer desert, but things were about to change that would lead to a whole new industry being developed by innovating entrepreneurs. You had a growing number of people, mostly home brewers and their fans, who wanted more variety, who were tired of these beers that all seemed to look and taste the same. And indeed they did. They start meeting sort of underground because home brewing was illegal in the United States, just sort of a quirk of post-prohibition America. The federal government forgot to legalize it. They legalized winemaking coming out of prohibition, but not home brewing. But then that happens in 1978. There's a push on from California, from some lawmakers and homebrew enthusiasts in California, to have homebrewing legalized at the federal level. That happens in 19, early 1978 and takes effect in 1979. But what does that do? That sort of brings these homebrewers out of the shadows and people begin openly sharing information. And they begin openly selling and sharing materials and recipes. So you have this sort of blossoming of underground entrepreneurial spirit turning pro. And that's where you get the sort of the, the first proliferation of smaller breweries in the United States is the late 1970s, early 1980s. So you have this infusion of knowledge and you have this counter reaction to the rise of light beer. If you wanted a, a richer tasting beer in the 1970s, up to that point, you had to make it yourself or you had to like chance upon it while you know in Europe or something like that. But suddenly you start to see the growth of microbrewing. Pilsner is still dominant and it's still dominant today, but you now have just sort of this kaleidoscope of styles and breweries. Today there are over 8,000 breweries in the United States. That's over double of what existed before prohibition. And a big reason why these breweries exist is the Pilsner and its oversaturation in the market during the 1970s. But everything old is new again and today the Pilsner is having a remarkable resurgence among even the people who tried to get away from it all those years ago. You know, history repeats itself and beer is very much sort of a cyclical, it's a cyclical thing. I mean, people discover and rediscover different styles and different approaches all the time. And I think Pilsner is just kind of having a moment because Craft brewing was a reaction to Pilsner's rise. And now I think the sort of rise of Pilsner within craft brewing is a reaction to craft brewing's rise. The defining feature, the defining characteristic of IPAs is bitterness. It's high, you know, that bitterness from hops. And so the sort of overwhelming prickly crispness and, and you know, alcoholic kick. And so if you want something different, what do you do? You know, you turn to a lighter tasting, sweeter beer. And that's Pilsner. You could not have had this counter reaction toward Pilsner without the rise of the bitter IPAs 
and you know the heavier seasonal beers and then in porters and ales and all that. Without those, you wouldn't have this reaction. And, and, but again, you wouldn't have those without the rise of Pilsner originally. So it's, it's kind of funny. They've, they've all sort of intersected. And, I, and there's no end in sight, too. That's the thing. There's this, you know, in many countries, federal governments or, or national governments regulate style and ingredients and proportions of ingredients in wine and spirits. But that's not the case for beer. You can call yourself whatever you want in the U.S. as long as you follow some, you know, guidelines as far as what you put on your label. You have to use Merlot, a certain proportion of Merlot grapes if you're going to call yourself a Merlot, if you're going to call your wine a Merlot. You don't have to use a certain proportion or a certain type of hop if you're going to call your beer an IPA. So it lends itself to this experimentation in the marketplace. And I, I think that's kind of a wonderful thing because it creates this experimental dynamic. And that brings everything full circle too. Because what is Pilsner to begin with? It was somebody 170 years ago experimenting with existing styles and ideas until they came up with something new. And that's still going on today. And a special thanks to Monty Montgomery for that piece. And Monty's, I believe Monty's passion is beer, sampling every kind possible. Also, Tom Acatelli, a special thanks to him. He's the author of Pilsner, How the Beer of Kings Changed the World. And I keep thinking about that line, where Germans go, they bring their Pilsner. And think about that with Italians, too, and their contribution with food, and Mexican-Americans, Chinese-Americans. And this is what we do here. We eat each other's food, and then we marry each other. The story of Pilsner, and the story of so much more, American history and American life and culture, here on Our American Stories. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only, Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with five good things a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Your teen requested a ride, but this time not from you. It's through their Uber teen account. 
You drive your teenager around a lot to their friend Jacob's house, their other friend Jake's house, to James's, to Jaden's, to Jalen's, to. Oh, uh, mom, this is Jake's house, not Jacob's. Now with an Uber Teen account, your teen can request a ride under your supervision. They'll ride with a highly rated driver, and with live trip tracking, you'll follow along the whole ride to their friends' houses that all sound the same. Add your teen to your Uber account today. See app for details. Bye, mom. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. And we return to Our American Stories. And up next, an incredible story from John O'Neill at the National Museum of the Mighty 8th Air Force in Pooler, Georgia, outside of Savannah. In 1943, John's father, John J. O'Neill Jr., served as a tail and waist gunner on an experimental B-17 that became the first American plane to bomb Berlin, all by some extraordinary chance. Here's John with a story. In 1943, the United States Air Force had one problem. Weather was hampering operations. The British came over and said, look it, we need the real hardware guns, boats, ammunition. We have some secrets that we're willing to trade for those. One of them was radar. The United States was so far behind in radar, the British were so far ahead. So when Roosevelt heard that, he said, give them what they want. We want their information because the Germans had radar. They knew when bombers were coming over and where they were crossing. So MIT, 3,000 scientists took this information and built the first operational United States radar sets to be put in specially equipped B-17s, all top secret. They could literally do navigation and bomb through overcast. My father's friend, Major Fred Rabo, was tasked with bringing these 12 B-17s from Boston, what's now Logan Airport, with the first radar sets in them. So they brought those over in 1943 and they formed a bomb group called the 482nd Bomb Group out of Alkenberry. They took crews from every one of the bomb groups 
and they trained them how to use radar. The very best navigators, the very best pilots, the very best crews were tasked with this. So the first operational radar mission. So these guys would get up the night before. They were told, you're gonna lead the 100th bomb group. So these special planes would fly the night before to a base, park there. The next day, they would work with the lead ship who was doing dead reckoning navigation and provide them radar fixes. So nobody knew, they couldn't name their planes. Most did, you know, the guys would take a lot of pride in putting their nose art on. But there were these contraptions sticking out from underneath the plane, either under the nose if it was an H2S set, or underneath the ball turret, or underneath the front of the nose if it was an H2X Mickey set. Very top secret, and they were called the Pathfinders, the 8th Air Force Pathfinders. My father's patch on his jacket is of a lightning bug with the light on the tail lit up holding a bomb. So it was basically that the lightning bug would light the target and when they were over it, they would drop the bomb. So all the different four squadron patches had very similar type. Either it was an eagle holding a bomb with a, with a flashlight, but they were called the Pathfinders. We wanted to reach Berlin going back to November of 43. And there were attempts to reach it because remember now we had the long range P-51. They also um, thought it was a great target of morale boost. Because remember, we hadn't landed on the beaches of Normandy yet. So they wanted to send a message that Hitler's capital could be reached. So they tried six times, starting in November of 1943, and each one of those missions was scrubbed. Fast forward, March 4th, my father's ship is sent to the 95th Bomb Group the night before at Horem. They were gonna lead the 13th Combat Wing to Berlin. Maximum effort mission. 750 B-17 and B-24 bombers are to leave for Berlin. Fighter escort all the way to the target and back. The target is the Bosch Electrical Components Factory in Mainklingkau, a suburb of Berlin just on the southeast. They're gonna hit that target because they make the fuel injection systems for the Hinkle bomber and the Luftwaffe's Messerschmitt and also the Focke-Wulf 190. They get up that day, they pull the curtain for the briefing, and they see the map of Europe, and they see the string which would take them to the target. Everybody sees Berlin. My, my father's waist gunner, a guy named Beans from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, leans to my father and goes, well, we're dead. Make sure you get everything to my parents back in Pittsburgh. <laughs> and now, of course, Beans would say that if they were going on a training mission. Yeah. He was like the Eeyore of the crew. So every time they were to go anywhere, but he says, no, this time I really mean it. They called my father Oni after O'Neill. It was like his short name, Oni. They all had shortened names. The, the other waste gunner was Hoppy. The, uh, the, the top turret gunner's name was Don White. It was Whitey. So they all had these names. So uh, Moffat was the ball turret gunner. So. Bean says, we're not gonna come back from this. We're not gonna come back from this. They take off for Berlin, maximum effort. The entire 8th Air Force is going. Weather's real bad. Delayed in takeoff. I mean, we could talk about formation flying and how, how long it took. Imagine 750 planes trying to get in formation with no anti-collision radar on the ships. It was all by sight. You'd get into clouds, you couldn't see. There were so many collisions. And when you collide two B-17s or two B-24s together with 2,000 gallons of high-octane aviation fuel, 7,000 rounds of 50 caliber ammunition, and a 12,000-pound bomb load, they would just <laughs> explode, and bodies would just you'd never be recovered. So anyway, they get over the continent. 
there's a radio recall issued. Weather target obscured, too much weather returned to base. My father said we had gotten a really good position in the formation. We were in the middle of the 750 bomber streams. So there were squadrons in front, squadrons in back, and this whole armada is headed to Berlin. They're in the middle. Why the middle was important or why it was considered safer? The Luftwaffe would come up and try to wipe out the lead squadrons in front. Then they would have to go down and refuel. So the front squadrons usually took the brunt and then the tail end squadrons, the low squadrons, would take the brunt. All of a sudden they start seeing these B-17s turning around. My father's uh, lieutenant gets on the radio. He's the Pathfinder ship. He's giving the course corrections. He says, sir, uh, uh, radio recall, you know, maintain radio silence. We will continue that the target is briefed. <laughs> that was it. And then crew, crew conversations were, has the colonel gone mad? So he's a 95th colonel. Anyway, long story short, the mission commander, Griff Mumford's plane, was using dead reckoning. They were drifting further and further off course, so they weren't taking the fixes that the radar ship was giving them. So finally they get on the radio and said, if you do not allow us to course correct, you're 49 miles off course right now, we're not gonna have enough fuel, we're not gonna hit the target, and we're not gonna get home. So at that point, Mumford says, take the lead. So of the 750 bomber stream, 39 bombers continued to the target. It was the charge of the light brigade. They get to the target, the 51s are there, including Chuck Yeager, who had his first shoot down that day. If the P-51s weren't there, 39 ships would have gone down, wiped out, no doubt about it. They get to the target. The colonel wanted to be the first one to bomb Berlin. It was a huge prestige thing going back to the States. He says, back off to the deputy lead position. So he begins to back off. The colonel gets on the IP or the final bomb run. Can't open his bomb bay doors. They're frozen shut. Bad weather. He says, take the lead. We'll bomb on the Pathfinder. They bomb. They shoot a flare. Open the bomb bays. My father's crew is the first United States Army Air Force B-17 to reach. Gets credited. They thought for sure that he was either going to get the Silver Star or court-martialed for disobeying a uh, radio recall order. Their explanation was that their radio man on the um, I'll Be Around B-17, that was the name of it, who was the lead ship, was interpreted as a false radio recall sent up by the Germans. My father's radio operator, who I had the opportunity to talk to, said, that radio recall was as real as they got. That was no <laughs> thing, because they had special codes they were given before every flight. And he says, I verified that. But they stuck with their, they didn't, they didn't divert. They stuck with them all the way to Berlin. But the P-51 saved them. Four 17s were lost over the target. 35 of the 39 got home. They flew over Horem. They landed. My father's crew went up to Alkenbury, which was about another 25 minutes near Cambridge. They got out of the plane, exhausted. It was like 12 hours in the air, combat, cold, and, um, they were met by one press person. Meanwhile, there was a huge Life magazine, Andy Rooney, Walter Cronkite, all these famous journalists were there at the base at the 95th. They got all the credit in the world of the newspapers, except for one guy from the New York Herald Tribune was at Alkenberry, and he heard the story and he interviewed the crew. They were ordered to meet with this guy after their mission debrief. 
and he told him the story and he hands him a copy of a teletype. He's typing it out on a special typewriter because it went across a transatlantic cable back to New York and it was kind of in a code. And he hands it to my father's pilot and he says, hold on to this. This is the true story of the mission to Berlin. Because he let him, my, my father's pilot would only talk to them if he was allowed to tell them who the crew was. But the original transatlantic cable was sent to me by my dad's pilot and he said, hold on to this for history. And I have the original navigation maps that were in the B-17 that Al Engelhart, the, the Mickey operator, had made all the times, the chart courses, how far off target they were, and how they ended up being the first B-17 to bomb Berlin. And a special thanks to Monty for the great job on the production. The story of John O'Neill as told by his son, here on Our American Stories. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Could these study results apply to your life? If you or a loved one are living with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer, take a look at the data for a clinical study where 50% of eligible people with HER2-positive MBC lived over two years without their tumors growing or spreading. Visit HER2Results.com to learn more. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Your teen requested a ride, but this time, not from you. It's through their Uber teen account. You probably drive your teenager around a lot. They have gymnastics club, science club, rec soccer club, school soccer club, club soccer club, and three-hour clarinet club on Saturday night. Perfect. Now, with an Uber teen account, you can be there even when you can't. It's an Uber account that allows your teen to request a ride under your supervision. They ride with a highly rated driver. And with live trip tracking, you can follow along the whole ride. Thank you. Add your teen to your Uber account today. See app for details. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like, da, 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. 